So this week and next, I'll be wrapping up our study in 1 John that we've been in for a couple of months now. This morning's big idea, which is derived from the text, and we're going to go there and take a look at it. When someone prays for you, they are leveraging their own relational assurance with God for you. When someone prays for us, they are leveraging their own relational assurance that they have with God for our benefit. We have found ourselves in a place of need where we need God to do something for us and we have been crying out to him and we're going through a season where we're just not seeing the prayers come uh, answered that we feel like for whatever reason, uh, God has hit the pause button on us. And we know we've all gone through these seasons and the problem is, is that we're experiencing a little bit of emotional or physical or spiritual discomfort. And so it becomes the longer we wait to hear God move for the answer to our prayer, the harder it is to be consistent in the very thing that we're looking for, which is our answer to prayer. Bitterness can begin to creep in, anger towards God. And before you know it, we stop seeking him in prayer at all. And so in that place of confusion or pain or anger or bitterness, we then reach out to somebody that strikes us as spiritually mature, that they have something that we used to have or maybe we want to have, but we currently don't have right now, which is assurance of their relationship with God. You feel like if that person prays for you, that they will have God's attention in a way that you're hoping for. So when, when someone prays for us, we are asking them to leverage their relational assurance of their own relationship with God on our behalf. I've shared this a number of times. I'm going to continue to share it until the day I die. But there was a season of my life over a year, year and a half long as a student pilot where every time I got into an airplane, I puked my brains out. Now, there are a lot of things we look for in pilots. There are a lot of things that we will overlook in pilots, but what we can't, what we all would agree we have a hard time with is when the guy up front is puking multiple times during the flight, that that's going to be a problem for us. And that, that was my, that was, that was where I was 20 years old, 21 years old, trying to learn how to fly an airplane. Literally, I'm the guy coming in from the flight line, right? Sun setting, mountains of East Tennessee, the flight deck has half a dozen small single-engine aircraft lined up. I've got my flight kit in one side and my headset strapped to my flight kit. And I'm taking long, leisurely strides as the East Tennessee wind is blowing through my locks. And I've got four puke bags hanging from my right hand. That was me. Heavenly Father, you called me to be a missionary pilot. You've funded my ability to be a missionary pilot. You've given me an aptitude. They wanted to kick me out of the school, but I was a good pilot while I was puking. I could fly with one hand and puke with the other. Not a problem for me. But it was going to be a problem. I tried everything to stop vomiting. And I mean everything. The little wristbands with the ceramic pellets that you put on the, between the second and third tendon of your left and right. I tried those. You can't take Dramamine because it knocks you out. We look down on that with pilots too that are unconscious. We prefer them, we prefer them conscious and not puking. Well, I was puking, but I, at least I was conscious. So I had something going for me. So I couldn't take Dramamine or anything like that. That would work. I tried envisioning my wife in, you know, 
various states of anger or sadness or madness to try and focus my attention by, you know, having my heart and my mind being thinking about, you know, my wife. I envision my mother on her deathbed. Anything to distract me from puking all the time. I tried it all. Tying my tie shoes too tight, not wearing shoes at all, eating certain foods for breakfast, fasting for multiple days on end, ginger capsules. Have you heard about that one? Don't get me started on ginger capsules. Let me just tell you, what goes down comes back up, and it's not fun when it's not coated in plastic anymore, people. Ginger burns on the way up. I tried it all, vomiting my brains out for about a year and a half. I'm, you know, I start out concerned, praying to God. I, I, I go through the stages of everything you've probably ever experienced in situations where I'm angry, I'm, I'm bitter, I'm sad. I'm, and then finally I do the right thing. I leverage someone else's relationship with the Lord to cry out on my behalf. And I make the phone call that nobody ever wants to make, the humbling phone call, the embarrassing phone call. And I cried out to my family, my mom and my dad and my in-laws. I said, I need you guys to pray. They're going to kick me out of this school. And, and it's not because of grades. I'm a halfway decent puking flyer. And over the course of a summer, after I humbled myself, the Lord did a work in my life and healed me of that. And come to find out, for me, it wasn't a physical problem at all. Nothing wrong with my inner ear. Nothing wrong with my sense of balance. Nothing wrong with sea legs or no sea legs or anything like that. It was anxiety and stress. And the Lord took it away from me. He healed me through prayer that summer. I leveraged someone else's relational assurance with God on my behalf because I couldn't do it on my own. This is what John is talking about this morning. As he's wrapping up his epistle, he is, he's going to introduce to us this concept that we have, he's been spending four and a half chapters talking about his listeners' assurance of their relationship with God, and then he tells them why it's so important. First John chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He's been talking about the believer's assurance of salvation for four and a half chapters now, and he concludes it with this statement. That the reason you can have assurance before God, that the reason that you can have assurance in your faith before God is that when you bring your concerns before God, you can do so with confidence. This is the confidence that we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. When someone prays for you, we are leveraging, we are asking them to leverage their relational assurance of their relationship with Jesus for our behalf. If you are a young man or a young woman in Eastern Connecticut and you're getting ready to graduate from high school and you're not really sure what you want to do with yourself, you don't have a ton of money for college you're not really sure if a college would be your direction, uh, even if you had the money for it. I have a guy. His name is Mr. Mike. He runs the 18-month certificate program at Quinnebog Valley Community College. I can call him today 
and set up a personal appointment with you and the director of an 18-month certification program where you can go to QVCC, you will graduate debt-free, and Mr. Mike will get you a job making $30 an hour in 18 months. I guarantee it. I have a guy. And if you are a young man or a young woman and you don't know what you want to do, graduate high school, college isn't necessarily your path, but you're interested in uh, machining or welding or working in a, a shop or EB or Whitcraft or something, if, that, if you're that person... I've got a guy. I will leverage my relationship with Mr. Mike for you. I've done it before. I'll do it again. Mr. Mike and I have a friendship that goes back decades. We've worked at camp together for many, many years. We've had good times at camp together. We've had bad times at camp together. And when I reach out to Mr. Mike, he will take my phone call. And when you call him up and say, hey, Pastor Josh said that maybe I could meet with you and you would give me a personal tour of the 18-month certification program at QVCC to get me up and running in a trade, he will say yes. It happened two weeks ago for a friend of mine here in town. I have a guy. I will leverage that relationship for you. It brings Mr. Mike and I great joy to know that we can continue to work with kids together in helping them get a career in a trade. We live for this kind of stuff. That is an example of what happens when someone prays for us. They have a guy. The guy can get stuff done. You need that guy. And so we ask for prayer. John says, this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. Here's the definition of prayer according to this passage. Confidently talking to God about something that his heart is wrapped up in. Confidently talking to and listening to our heavenly father about something that is on his heart. You know what's been on Mr. Mike's heart for a long time? Working with kids. Whether it's in Sunday school or at camp or his own boys when he was actively raising his own family, Mr. Mike has always been about kids. And if you call up Mr. Mike as a young man or a young woman, or if you call up Mr. Mike on behalf of your son or your daughter, you have his full attention and his heart. Now, if you call up Mr. Mike and want to talk about golf, he doesn't care. Doesn't care. If you want to call up Mr. Mike and talk about your own feelings, he'll put up with it for a little bit, but let me tell you right now, he doesn't care. You know what Mr. Mike cares about? Kids. And Mr. Mike has a superpower. He can get them jobs. He is the guy. If you want to have Mike's heart, talk to him about a young man or a young woman who needs a little direction, who needs to graduate debt-free and get a job making $30 an hour. You have his attention. Prayer is confidently talking to our Heavenly Father and listening to our Heavenly Father about something that is on his heart. Sometimes we use prayer as a way of stating a need or making an announcement, and it's not really a prayer. Uh, it, it goes something like this. Hey, pastor, I really need you to pray for me this week. Okay, you know, how can I help? Happy to do so. 
well, I'm taking the family to Disney, and uh, Mr. Fluffykins, our cat, we, 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 he, he gets so anxious when we're out of town. We're going to be gone for two weeks visiting the mouse, and I really need you to pray about Mr. Fluffykins while we're in Disney. Okay, there is something to pray for there, but it is not Mr. Fluffykins. Not only does Pastor Josh not care about Mr. Fluffykins, neither does Jesus. He doesn't. Because here's the reality. This is why you have a small group, people. Why would you be coming up to the pastor and ask for prayer for Mr. Fluffykins because you need someone to watch him for two weeks, but you can't be bothered to have any relationships in your small group with a family that can help you with Mr. Fluffykins? Where's your ministry partnerships, people? Where are the people that you actively work and serve with and say, hey, we're going to Disney. I need someone to watch Mr. Fluffykins. Because the bottom line is there is somebody in the church who will take very good care of Mr. Fluffykins for you. Who cares about Mr. Fluffykins and his anxiety and his pet-specific diet and all the things? There is somebody in the church who will help you with Mr. Fluffykins because we're a church and we care about. There's somebody who will care about Mr. Fluffykins, but it's not your pastor. And let me get this straight. It's not God either, because he's already given you the people to help you with Mr. Fluffykins. Now, in that scenario, and I'm not saying that this has happened, and and now it definitely won't. In that scenario, here's what your pastor is going to do. I will happily pray for you, and this is what the prayer will be. Heavenly Father, I pray that this family enjoys their time at Disney. I hope that it's a time of refreshment for them. I hope that they just fall in love with each other all over again. I hope that memories are made that will help them through the dark times because not every day is a day in the magical kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that when they come back, that their love for each other has been renewed. Heavenly Father, I also pray for this, that while they are at Disney and they're completely removed from their local church and their local jobs and their local schools, that you would put a vision for your gospel on their heart that will not give them rest or peace until they connect with your people that they would come back with a burden to be in a small group, that they would come back with a burden to minister to your people, that they would come back with a burden to use the spiritual gifts and aptitudes that you've blessed them with and to stop ignoring them. What about Mr. Fluffykins? Don't care. But there is something to pray about right there, right? There is, there is some, because when I go to pray, I'm not going to leverage my relational assurance with my heavenly father on behalf of Mr. Fluffykins. Won't do it. But I will on behalf of your ability to engage in the local church and to use the power of God in your life that he's already given you. There's something to pray for there. And I I guarantee you that the Lord will hear one of those prayers of mine, but he won't hear the other. Because the Lord would much rather have someone crying out on behalf of a family who is disengaged from the power of that he has for them in relationship in a local church than he is about how, the welfare of their cat for two weeks while they're on vacation. I know that sounds a little mean, doesn't it? It, it sounds a little rough. Uh, and, and, and I'm telling you that it hasn't happened. And, and I don't mean that my passionate dislike of cats is preempting the powerful truth of the gospel that I'm trying to share with you in a way that will actually come into your ears because you've never heard this before. But John says, now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so I would humbly submit that our definition of prayer needs to be something along the lines of confidently talking to God about something, 
confidently listening to God through the power of his word about something that is on his heart. And when we have identified something that is on his heart, that we can confidently speak and listen to our heavenly father. And it's going to be amazing the prayers that we begin to pray and have answered. And John says that this is the some result of our assurance with God, that we can have the kind of prayer life that people would turn to us when they are experiencing a need, knowing that when we advocate for them, it's like me talking to Mr. Mike. The answer is yes. And something is going to change, and we're going to see God honored and glorified. Now John goes on to share with us two of the most challenging and difficult verses, not only in the New Testament, but in the whole Bible. And so let's just go there and take a look at what John says, because there's a powerful truth here, and then there's something that we need to talk about that's very hard to understand. And I'm not saying that we're going to have perfect understanding of it, but I, I, I don't want that to eclipse the powerful truth that John has here for us. So the text continues in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. There is sin that brings death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not bring death. <laughs> oh, don't you wish it was your Sunday to preach? Don't you wish you could be the one that can come up here and explain those verses to you? Those are some hard verses, people. Does the Bible actually say that there is stuff I should not pray about? Yes, right here. That when it comes to the sin that leads to death, we don't need to worry about praying about that. Well, it leads to some obvious questions. What is that sin? We're going to go there in a minute. But here's the first thing, and it's the big idea that is so easily eclipsed because John is using words and ideas that are so foreign to what we feel the gospel has for us. And this is it. That when we have assurance of our faith and we are beginning to cry out and speak to our Heavenly Father and listen to our Heavenly Father about things that are on His heart and mind and we begin to see Him move, that we are to leverage that kind of prayer for each other. Of all the things that John says we could begin praying about with the assurance that we have in our faith, he says, pray for your brothers. He doesn't pray for the clear proclamation of the gospel to the corners of the world. He doesn't pray for the clear establishment of the local church in the first century because we're starting something new and it's going to be challenged. There are so many things that he could have told his first century audience to pray for, understanding that they have assurance of their relationship with God, leverage that relationship, begin to pray with confidence, knowing that when we speak to God about matters that are on his heart, that he will be engaged and he will answer those prayers. John says, you know what's on God's heart? Your brothers and sisters. That's on God's heart. That's a huge idea. Of all the things that the Apostle John could tell the first century church to pray for, to say this is on God's heart, leverage your own relationship to make this happen, he says pray for each other. Pray for each other. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give life to him. 
pray that the spirit of God would fill your brothers and sisters with assurance of their faith and life. And that if they have committed a sin that is separating them from you, that you would forgive them them sin and re-inject them with life. He says, that's what we should be doing for each other. Let me tell you about things that split churches so fast. It's not even funny. Worship teams split churches super fast. The kind of songs that we sing, uh, old songs sometimes can cause churches to split. Oh, we never sing any new songs. Sometimes when a church only sings new songs and everyone says, oh, what about the old songs? So it's called the worship wars. If you Google the worship wars, you can actually find internet websites that explore what happened to hundreds, if not thousands of churches in the 80s and the 90s as many churches transitioned from hymns to praise and worship songs. Worship will, a, a, a worship team. And then you get into the whole question of who's actually leading the church in worship. That'll split a church as fast as a New York minute as well. Well, I don't like so-and-so. You should have seen what they did to me in the parking lot of Costco last week. And now they're supposed to be leading me in worship. Here we go. Things that'll split a church. Number three, faster than anything, worship wars. Number two, church kitchens. Church kitchens will split a church faster than even a worship war will. Because you bought napkins and plates and cups and knives and forks for your event and you put them in the cupboard and you went to use them and somebody else said, oh, good, here's plates, knights, calves and and forks for my event. The church must have bought them and they use them and now you're stuck. Split a church so fast. Church kitchens are of the devil. That's why our church isn't going to have a kitchen. Splits the church. Splits the church. We like to fight about whose cabinet is what. Then somebody puts a lock on a cabinet and drills a hasp block on it. And, and then someone's breaking it off with a pry bar. And you're trying to worship in church. And all you can think about is whether or not you've got styrofoam cups that you put there a week and a half ago. Church kitchen split churches. Number one thing that splits a church, building program. Building program will split a church so fast. Because we're talking real money, people. We're talking about vision for the future, how we're going to take care of our kids. We're talking about accumulating actual debt. We're talking about working through a hard scenario. We're talking about uh, choosing, you know, color themes for a church and what kind of flooring and what kind of this and what kind of that and where are the windows going to be and why didn't we think of that? Nothing will split a church faster than the building program. Worship wars, church kitchens, and building programs. We'll split a church so fast. This is why I think John says of all the things that we could be doing with our confident relational assurance with Jesus Christ is praying for each other. Because it is really hard to fight with someone that you're praying for new life in at the same time. As you begin to pray for somebody who stole your styrofoam cups and then locked you out of that cabinet, you spent $15. It's really hard to, to, to not have your heart softened towards that person when you begin to pray for them. And of all the things that we can pray for as a church, John concludes his first epistle to the Ephesian church by saying, leverage your relationship with God to pray new spiritual life into your brothers and your sisters. Don't let anything, don't let anything come between you. If there is a sin that does not bring death, and I would humbly suggest that someone stealing your styrofoam cups is a sin that does not 
bring death. Now, we don't even have a kitchen or a cupboard. I'm talking about stuff here at River Church that we've never thought about because we have a wonderful worship team. We don't have any cupboards, and, and we've only just begun our building program. But you've all been a part of churches where this has happened. I would humbly submit that when someone steals your styrofoam cups, it's not a sin leading to death. That if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give life to him. So let's not skip over that first very important phrase because we're going to jump into the second part and it's easy to forget that. So of all the things that we were to be advocating the Father on behalf of, the proclamation of the gospel, the establishment of his church, the health of our family, it's, it's weird to be actively praying for each other, specifically that when we stumble and fall, because we all do, that God would send the presence of his Holy Spirit into the life of your brother and your sister, and that that life would be restored. That is a powerful truth. And then he goes on to say that there is a sin that brings death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is, is sin, and there is a sin that does not bring death. So John is basically saying, we get it, that there is unrighteousness and it is sin. And I just told you, you should be praying for people that you know and love who sin, that the Lord would restore their faith and bring life to them. That is the most important prayer a New Testament church can be doing. Praying for each other, to stand strong with each other, to not be divided even during contentious and divisive times. But then John says that there is a sin that brings death. Every time the New Testament uses the word death, you need to think separation. That we know that when somebody dies physically, they have been separated from their body. That's what we mean by that. When someone dies spiritually, which is what John is talking about here, they have been separated from God. And and, and you can see how it's, it's a compare and contrast because if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring separation or death... He should ask, and God will give him what? Forgiveness? Nope. Peace? Nope. Restoration of health? Nope. Life. Right? There, that, that's what spiritual life in the New Testament means, that you are with God. Because you, if, if you are with God, you are fine. Right? And then he says, but there is a sin that brings a, a level of separation. That, that someone is walking away. And, and, and John says some very painful words. Uh, we don't have to worry about praying for that. So if you're still wrapped up about Mr. Fluffykins, what I said had nothing on what the Apostle John says here. John says that there is a sin that brings death, and I'm not saying that he should pray about that. Okay, well, what does that, what is that sin? Let's talk about it. What is John talking about? Because he doesn't spend one word of Scripture clarifying what he means there. He just says, don't do it. So what could it be? Well, if we look at other passages in the New Testament, uh, it could be a specific, terrible, heinous sin, uh, like publicly preaching about how you don't like cats, something like that, something so beyond the pale that you're just like, wow, I don't think that guy knows Jesus at all. So it could be a specific, terrible, heinous sin, that if we see someone sin just in a terrible, awful way, that uh, we, we don't have to spend any moment or time leveraging our relationship with God to pray for that person because obviously they're spiritually dead. It, it could be something like that. And so fill in the blank, you know, uh, drug addiction, 
uh, divorce, uh, hatred, you know, pride, arrogance, seven deadly sins, fill in the blank. Could be one of those. John doesn't say. It could be any sin that is being boldly and unrepentantly continued. Uh, tax evasion. Maybe John's talking about, you know, unrepentant attitude towards taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and what's the God is God's. And you never give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You always avoid your taxes and never pay your taxes. Maybe that's, you know, an, a bold, unrepentant, unconfessed. You're not even a little bit sorry about it. You're going to keep doing it no matter what kind of a sin. Maybe that's what John's talking about. Don't know. Text does not say. Maybe it's something that we would all agree is very, very serious, like just denying Jesus is the Lord. Like, we don't even like to hear that said out loud. You know, maybe it's someone that says, you know, I don't believe in Jesus at all, and I don't think he's God, and, you know, John is saying, don't worry about praying about people like that. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's someone uh, who would blaspheme against the power of the Holy Spirit. We see this teaching in the Gospels that someone who has made a profession of faith and the Lord has planted a seed of holiness in their life, repentance leading to faith and salvation. They turn and they walk for a season following after the Lord and then they uh, don't. And it's like the parable of the seeds that fell on the path or the rocks or the good soil. And maybe, maybe faith sprung up in their life for a couple of years, but then, you know, really the foundation wasn't solid. And, and they go around and they say, you know what? Yeah, I was a Christian for a while, like Bob Dylan. My parents loved Bob Dylan because, you know, they were hippies and dope smoking people through the 60s and 70s. And so was Bob Dylan. And then Bob Dylan professed Jesus in the early 80s, slow train to come in, grew up listening to that album. It's all about Jesus. It's Bob Dylan's one Christian album. And then that lasted until the album sales stopped for that record. And then lo and behold, he's not a Christian anymore. Right? Grew up, sprung up, there was fruit, it's gone. You don't, you've, maybe you've never even heard that Bob Dylan made a profession of faith. Google it. Slow train coming. It's his Christian album. He's got a number of them since then that are obviously not Christian. And, and someone looks back on that season of their life and they say, nope, the Holy Spirit was never at work in my life. If, it's, if, if that's my best definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that I made a profession of faith and I thought it was a thing, but I look back on that now and say, nope, it wasn't a thing. That's a very dangerous, maybe that's what John is referring to here. We don't need to worry about praying for those people. They have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Personally, I think in this context, it has more to do with the propagation of false teaching. John warns his listeners about false teachers. He tells them how to tell when someone is a false teacher and when they're actually not a false teacher. And uh, there were people in the first century church who were pretending to be something that they weren't so that they could have authority in a church and lead people astray for their own personal gain. That's evil. And so it could be that maybe John is warning them about, you know what, if you don't have, if there was a false teacher and you guys identified him and, and he moved on and he's not in the church anymore, you don't need to divide the kingdom rather than call people to repentance. You don't need to worry about praying for that guy. Maybe that's what it is. Five or six options there about what this sin that leads to death could be. John does not spend one word clarifying what this sin is. So what are we supposed to do about that? Here's my best teaching on this subject. It was obvious to his listeners. Whatever it was, he didn't have to waste his breath or his pen or his ink or his time describing what that sin was because they obviously knew 
what it was. Maybe it was in another teaching that we don't have access to. Maybe it was a sermon that he gave that we never heard. I don't know. But whatever it was, it was so obvious to the first century church that John didn't need to clarify what it was at all. So what we don't know is what it was. What we do know is that for someone in the first century church who was regularly advocating for their brothers and sisters, that God's life would be continually renewed in them, even though they sin, that when someone is praying like that, they would be obvious to them when they could stop. That, I guess for us today, what I'm saying is, as long as we don't have peace about a situation, we should continue to pray for our brothers and sisters. But if God gives us peace, either through answered prayer or their actions that make it obvious that our prayers are in vain, then we should continue to advocate and pray for them. One example from the physical realm, and I'm going to wrap up this sermon and our time together this morning. A time when it is obvious to stop praying for somebody. I have a friend who died yesterday. He was 55 years old. His name was Paul. He was diagnosed with brain cancer two years ago. He was given to live until Thanksgiving of 2018. And his diagnosis came in July or August of 2018. And he was told to get his stuff together, make your amends with your family and whatever, because you're going to die. You're probably going to die by Thanksgiving, definitely by Christmas. Well, two, almost two and a half years went by before Paul did die, but he did die Saturday morning. So what has his church been doing for him for the past two, two and a half years? I've been praying their guts out, myself included. Anointing him with oil, loving on him, praying for him that the Lord would heal him of his brain cancer. I didn't pray for him today. He's with Jesus. I have perfect peace about not praying for Paul anymore. Now, his children, I don't have any peace there. His wife, don't have any peace there. His extended family, don't have any peace there. So the church needs to continue praying for Paul's family. But the one person we don't need to pray for anymore, Paul's dead. He has been separated from his physical body. He's not suffering brain cancer anymore. He loves Jesus. He made that clear. He lived the life of a Christian businessman in that order. His family has 100% confidence of where he's at today. In fact, truth be told, I'm just saying real things today. There's a part of them that is maybe kind of happy that it's over because it's been hard watching a 55-year-old guy that was in great shape not be able to get out of bed in the morning. And now he has nothing but time and eternity to sing and dance and praise the Lord in a way that we can only dream about. So if there is relief for his family today, it's because he's dead. We don't need to pray for Paul anymore. I have peace about that. And what this text is saying is that until we have that kind of peace about someone's spiritual situation, that we should continue to advocate and pray that the Lord would bring energy and spiritual life and authority and to forgive them of their sin and that they would walk closely with the Lord. One final verse and then I'm done. So Vince, you can come on up if you'd like with your team. Thank you for your ministry, Vince. I've never met a a worship leader There's a reason we don't have worship wars at this church. 
Yeah. Yeah. Never been a part of a church like this. But we're being led by a man of God and whoo, praise the Lord for that. Here's why I harp on the idea of peace when it comes to prayer. This verse is not on the screen, but it's a promise found in the New Testament given to us by Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Listen to what Paul says regarding prayer. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Don't worry about anything. Should I be praying for this guy? He's living a life of unrepentant sin. Should I be praying for this guy? He's blaspheming in the name of Jesus. Should I be praying for this guy? Look at the way he treats his wife and his family. Like, I think he's just spiritually dead. Should I be praying for this guy? Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7. Love this. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a promise of the New Testament that as long as we are worried by something, we should be praying for it so that the Lord can send the peace that he promises. In my case, with my illness, I didn't have any peace. Felt like my prayers were bouncing off the sky. I brought those that I knew and trusted and loved into my life and I experienced peace that summer as the Lord healed me. And there might be other difficult situations in your life that you're dealing with that might have to do with anxiety or or stress or family member. And I would encourage you that if you're wondering whether or not you should be praying for that person, the answer is yes, especially if you don't have any peace there because the Bible promises peace when we pray. That while we're waiting for the answer, that we can live a life marked by peace because we have committed it to our Heavenly Father. Prayer is talking to something, our Heavenly Father, talking to our Heavenly Father about something that is on his heart. And when we have done that, we begin to receive the peace that is promised to us. If we don't, it means we probably need to expand the prayer circle and then take power in the verse and the promise that John says, which is of all the things the first century church should be doing right now, it's praying for each other because there's so many things that try to divide us. And so this morning, maybe you're hearing this gospel message and the way I've been talking about God, it sounds like I actually know him that I'm talking about difficult verses in the Bible with a certain degree of authority and knowledge that it's obvious to you that you don't have that. And let me be the first to tell you that if you're noticing something like that, that's what happens when you pledge your life to Jesus Christ. He begins through the power of the Holy Spirit to help you know and understand things that you could have never understood by yourself. And you know this morning that you need that. And that it's a simple prayer. Because what I'm saying is it's, it's about prayer this morning. So here's something that is on God's heart that he would love for you to pray about this morning. It's you. <laughs> you are on God's heart because he wants you to be a member of his kingdom, of his family, to have that confidence in his presence and you don't have it yet. It sounds like this. Heavenly Father, I am not a member of your family. I would be the last person to want to talk about what is on your heart or your mind. I have no idea. But it's become obvious to me this morning, Father, through the fellowship of the saints and the worship and the prayer and the preaching, that there are people who do have that kind of relationship with you. I humbly ask that you give it to me. I turn from my sins and everything that I know displeases you and myself, and I acknowledge Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. I know that you care because the Bible says you came. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of us might need to pray that prayer this morning. 
some of us might be thinking, it's been a long time since I felt like the Lord has answered my prayer. Or when I'm praying, I'm going through what you're talking about, anger and bitterness and discontent and sadness. I don't think the Lord is listening to me. I would encourage you to open up your life humbly to someone that you feel can pray for and with you. And, and allow them the privilege of praying God to bring an area of your life back to life because honestly, your heart is dying in that area right now. And it could be like Paul's family who is struggling with their faith for the last two years as their dad is dying. It could be something like that going on in your life. It could be something at work. It could be a relationship. But you need to see God restore life because right now you, need, you see separation. I would encourage you to broaden your prayer circle. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, I pray that in a year where River Church is looking to reach out and to make a community presence like never before, that we would not be divided. And we understand, Father, through this text and many others, that the key to being one in your presence is that we pray for each other. That we understand, that we pray with our eyes wide open to the fact that we have committed sins that don't lead to eternal spiritual separation and understanding that about each other we still pray for each other asking that you would bring to life the areas in our lives that are not pleasing to you father i pray that as we are praying for our community and for our outreaches this year that we would not neglect this prayer as well that we would pray for each other father would you forgive us of our sins would you restore the love that we have for each other and for you Would you give us the confidence that we need moving forward to clearly represent your gospel in our community this year? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.